0: Hi, this is Taylor Stuber and
1: this is Sean Smithgall. We are both clinical pharmacists and faculty members at Auburn University, Harrison School of Pharmacy, and we are your hosts for The Postgraduate Pharmacist. On The Postgraduate Pharmacist, we focus on preparing and
0: obtaining postgraduate training positions. From current events to expert advice, you'll have up to date content related to postgraduate training. New episodes are released every other Monday. So don't forget to like or subscribe. Follow us on
1: Twitter at PG Pharmacist or Instagram and LinkedIn at the Postgraduate Pharmacist.
0: Returning for another episode is David Stewart, professor at ETSU College of Pharmacy and residency program director for the ASHP PGY2 and internal medicine at ETSU. David, welcome back.
2: Uh, Thank you, Taylor. It's good, good to be back to join you and Sean again.
0: So, David, you brought this idea to
1: us, which from a candidate's perspective is, is postgraduate training the right choice for me? Am I doing this because I truly want to, or am I pressured into this decision because someone else told me or thinks I should be doing this? So Taylor and I agree, this is an incredibly important and overlooked conversation. So we wanted to start off by asking you, why do you feel this needs to be addressed or talked about?
2: Well, I appreciate you asking that question in that way, because I have I have the a- a story, uh, literally the reason that I, I came up with this and feel this way. And something's been on my radar for, uh, you know, the over 15 years in academia now. So when I was at Auburn, uh, internal medicine faculty member in my office at the hospital, had a young lady ask if she could come and meet with me and came and sitting across the desk from me. And she said, I'm trying to decide what to do, you know, my career path. Could you give me some advice? Said, sure. I'm happy to. So tell me what you're thinking. And she said, well, I've got this, uh, opportunity. I always wanted to go back to the small town that I'm from and be a pharmacist there. Um, there's a guy I've worked for, a pharmacist, owned his own pharmacy. Uh, he has asked me about coming and working for him. And then over a you know a period of time, uh, purchasing the store from him and owning my own pharmacy and what I've always, you know, I always wanted to do. And I said, well, I don't see what the problem is. She said, well, everybody tells me I need to do a residency. Tell me more about that. And so, basically, she just proceeded to say that she had had several faculty members talk about that since she was so smart and such a good student that she really needed to do a residency because if she didn't, she, from her perception, she's wasting her time, she's throwing her career away. I mean, really strong sentiment from that student. And I remember thinking, "Is like, well, this is it crazy? Like, you know, if, if this is what you want to do, and this opportunity is laid out before you, why would you not?" take that opportunity, and what good is a PGY1 residency? At that time she was looking at PGY1, you know, health system-based residencies. What is that going to do for you to go and own that? So we talked pharmacy. so we talked about ways that she could potentially improve her abilities to offer clinical pharmacy services in the community setting, you know, whether that's even a community residency, which was somewhat new at that period mm-hmm. of time. But we talked about other avenues where she could gain experiences, APHA certificate programs, things like that, and how she could take some of what she'd learned and elevate her practice of pharmacy in the community setting. But I really walked away from that experience, and that was ingrained in my mind that we need to be so careful because sometimes we're intentional and oftentimes we're unintentional in how we plant these seeds of doubt or we encourage students, maybe it's implicit, we don't realize we're doing it, but we encourage students to do something that's not the right fit for them. And so it's uh, something that we as faculty members need to keep on our radar and preceptors in general. But I think the students need to hear that because inevitably they're going to hear from a preceptor, they're gonna hear from a faculty member, you need to do this, and here's all the reasons you need to do this. But what it is is someone else imposing their thoughts, their perspectives, their views on on the student, and not helping the student make the decisions that are right and, and best for the student. So that's that is why I feel so strongly about this topic is that sometimes, quite frankly, our students get bad advice. It's intended well, but it's it's bad advice.
1: And we're I'm hearing, and I've heard this since I've started precepting students, even as a resident, I've heard from the students who We're not intending on doing postgraduate training. Not every one of them have this, but I've heard it across multiple institutions where they're like, I feel like all my faculty care about is if I do a residency. And they only care about, they want me to do it so bad. All they care about are the students that want to do a residency. It seems like they're pushing us to do a residency or pushing us to do postgraduate training. It's hitting home with what you're saying. It's like you're not doing it the right way or you're not
0: supporting the students in the way that they should be supported and i couldn't agree more and i think you know it might be unintentional even at times but i think we do kind of set them up to think or or get the perception that all we want them to do is is pursue a residency and that's the only way to measure or gauge success in their careers and honestly we really need strong and capable and smart individuals in the community because that's where the most pharmacists are going to end up is in the community and we don't want them to feel like they're just taking a back seat to what our true intentions are so i am really excited to talk about this topic
2: one well, one of the things i always hate to hear a student say is i'm just going to work in community pharmacy as if it's well i'm i'm recognizing i'm throwing up a flag of defeat and i'm doing this this lesser you know skill this lesser uh, practice within the profession. And my pushback to them is, you know, look, you need to be an agent of change. You need to go out and be the best community pharmacist that you can be. Because like you said, Taylor, you're you're interacting with the patients probably more than pharmacists in many other settings, especially if you're at a, a place where you can provide some individualized care and know your patients and uh, provide a high level of care for them. So don't ever, I, if you're a student, listening, one of my students, don't say I'm just going to be a community pharmacist. <laughs> no, you're going to be a pharmacist and you're going to be impactful uh, and you're going to do that in the community setting. And I also try as a preceptor to set the students up ahead of time to say, look, okay, you're going to community pharmacy. You're on an internal medicine rotation. Here's the things that you should really be looking for as a community pharmacist go, you know, on this rotation. Um, it's not that I hold them to a lesser standard, but what I do is throughout the month, I will try to illustrate with them why it's important they're learning the things that they're learning with me. Uh, so I'll relate it back and say, you know, we just had this big issue and this big discussion about maybe antiplatelet therapy and the discharge prescriptions for this patient post-MI. If you were in the pharmacy and this patient walked in with this stack of prescriptions, how's that going to change the way that you take care of them now after seeing you know what happened to them on the inpatient side and understanding and realizing the outcomes that we're trying to achieve for them uh, long term. And so I try to drive those points home to help them see why it's important that even though they're going to community, yes, you need to do the internal medicine rotation, just as the internal medicine you know bound student needs to do the community pharmacy rotation. I learned a lot of valuable things in my community pharmacy rotations. They may not have been my favorite. But there are things I learned, skills I learned from being there that helped me be a better internal medicine pharmacist.
0: Yeah.
1: I love all that. You know, you mentioned last episode, I mean, you gave a great story about your passion for what you're doing now and what drove you to that passion to be a clinical pharmacist. Did you go back and forth with that at all? You said that in your fourth years when it really solidified with you, did you ever have doubts? Did you ever go back and forth and what kind of went through your head during that process?
2: Absolutely. And, and I'm happy to elaborate a little more on that because it did. I did waffle somewhat in that decision. I was really torn because I wanted to be a good pharmacist in the inpatient setting. But I also remember having those doubts in my mind of, is it worth a year of my time, reduced salary? Just some of those things that students are probably thinking as they're trying to make that decision for residency. And I also was struggling to wrap my mind around what I would benefit from the residency that I wasn't getting from clinical rotations or I hadn't already got from the experience of several years working in the inpatient environment. And specifically it was during October and November of my P4 year, I had back-to-back internal medicine rotations and those happened to be at Duke University Medical Center, uh, which is one of our, our primary practice sites there at Campbell. And the experience I received there was phenomenal. The environment, the focus on learning, uh, the ability to work in a team environment. There, there, I can't think of anything that I didn't love about that experience. And at that point in time, I knew that if I wanted to do that, I needed to do the residency. And so for me, that was a turning point because I was able to have a specific goal in my mind. And that was what was lacking before. It's like, well, I can kind of do what I think I want to do without doing this, so do I need to do the residency. But once I got a taste of that, I knew that's, that's what I need to get there. I would back up and say that it's a little different for our students today, and I try to explain this to them. At the point in time I graduated pharmacy school, I could have gotten a basic job in a hospital, likely would have had some basic clinical functions without a residency. You're probably not going to do that in 2021. So if that's the path that you want to go down, let that be the motivation or why you want to go and do the residency. But for me, it was those specific experiences in October, November, where, where I said, that's what I want to do, and this is what I need to do to get there. And and it was so helpful for me uh, because I no longer had any doubts. Because up until that point, I'd waffled back and forth for ever since I'd learned about residencies. Is this something I need to do? Do I want to do it? But that just helps solidify it.
0: Yeah, I think those are excellent points. And I, I really try to encourage students to really reflect and have some introspection about, you know, what do they really want out of their career? Where do they want to end up? And, and that be the motivation and not just somebody else is telling me I need to do this. So I really like how you describe that process for for yourself. You mentioned earlier about
1: that the story you gave about a student coming in and saying, I was told this, what do you think would be the motive for pushing for preceptors and faculty to push postgraduate training on students,
2: I'll start by saying I think, and I think that's an important word because it is, you know, my own personal thoughts. But what I try to do is approach things like this from a differential diagnosis perspective. So, what are the possible, you know, out outcomes? What are the possible reasons they could be doing this? And I, I think there's a couple things that could be at play here. Number one is I think the, the positive would be that faculty and preceptors are so passionate about what they do. They want to share that passion with others. And they think that the way for others to be fulfilled in their careers is to do what they do because, right, because you're happy doing your job. So therefore, anybody that would do my job would be happy. But they don't stop and think that, well, maybe for this individual, it's not a good fit. I think a perfect example would be my wife, who's a community pharmacist. Um, She's currently not practicing, but did for a number of years. And she would not enjoy doing what I do every day. And likewise, I would not enjoy doing what she did, but she loved her job and I love my job. So what you want to do is find the job that, that is a right fit for you. So I think faculty and preceptors are well-meaning, but they just, they're so passionate about what they do that they they imprint that on everyone else and think, well, if you want to be happy, you got to do what I do. Uh, and that's not necessarily accurate in all cases. And then I think the other one is maybe not quite as positive, And I don't know that it's they intentionally mean it negatively, but I think there is a negative component to elevating yourself to, well, I've done the residency. I practice in this environment. Therefore, I am a a better pharmacist. My career has more worth than a pharmacist practicing in another setting. I I think that there, there are a handful of folks that probably do look at the profession in a tiered approach and say, if you're going to be a top tier pharmacist, then you need to do this training and/or practice in this environment, and then if you want to be a second tier pharmacist, you can go practice in this environment. I said I hope that's a small number of people that feel that way, but uh, you know it may be a combination of both, and we may not realize some of the biases that we hold uh, just based on you know our perceptions, our experiences, and and even uh, the people that we hang around. You know those types of things. So hopefully folks are doing it more for the first reason than the second reason. But I I think those are probably the two predominant things.
0: Yeah, I think I definitely have to catch myself at times because I'm also very passionate about what I do and, you know, I want to share that passion, but having those conversations with yourself and some honest feedback for yourself as a preceptor or faculty member, I think is also going to be important in helping our students, you know, achieve their goals and everything. So kind of a follow-up to that last question, if schools mostly
1: represent their match rate as a percent match, like they'll say, we have a 60% match rate or 75% match rate out of the students who pursue postgraduate training. Here are the ones that are successful. Why risk pushing students who are not passionate about this to do it if we're not going to try to report overall match statistics?
2: Yeah, I think that's a very legitimate question and something that preceptors and or the faculty should be thinking about. I think on a tiered approach, it would be at the bottom of the list of reasons to do, the, to do the right thing, if you will. But I do think it's one of those, if you're weighing pros and cons, it's one of the things we should think about. So if you are trying to encourage students who are not good candidates, who aren't interested in doing a residency to do one, it is going to adversely affect your metrics that you look at as, as a college of pharmacy. So, yeah, I think it's a legitimate thing to consider. But at the same time, probably something even more important is to consider the well-being of that student. So if you push a student that is likely not to be successful and you build them up to the point that they're convinced, and I've, I've seen this happen before, where I'm, I'm sitting there in February and a student's talking about applying for residency and interviewing for residency and either they haven't gotten very many interviews or they had some interviews and they didn't think they went well, or maybe they've interviewed all these different programs. And I'm sitting there thinking you're likely not to match at any of them. And then they go through the match and are disappointed through that process. You've really set that student up for disappointment. And you've also hurt their career chances perhaps because they've been so convinced they're getting a residency and now they don't have one that they don't have, and they don't have a backup plan. They oftentimes don't have contingency plans when they're pursuing residencies and so now you've adversely affected that student they're struggling they're worried and stressed out because of that so again i think that metric for the school is something to think about it it, it's on the pro con list but it's probably at the bottom of the list and there's probably several other good reasons uh, why you should be thinking about approaching this at a student centered perspective and tailoring it to the individual student
0: i like how you said the well-being of that student and i think it could not only adversely affect the well-being of that student, but potentially other students who maybe are passionate applying for residency because maybe they didn't get an interview at, you know, one of the programs that they applied to because the student who wasn't as passionate about it, you know, ended up getting that slot. So I think it could have kind of a domino effect in the sense if you think about it that
2: way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't think it's honest for the faculty to tell a student that you're pretty confident is not gonna be successful in a residency, to keep pushing them and leading them on, if you will, to pursue something that you ultimately don't think they're gonna be successful at. At the very least, you should have a candid conversation with the student and let them know that there's concerns. And, And the easy way to do it is objectively, you look at some of the metrics that are related to match rate. RPDs will tell you it doesn't matter. ASHP will tell you it doesn't matter. But I would argue there's evidence out there and we have some internal um, data that we've collected and there is a very strong correlation between GPA and success in the match. And so if you're dealing with a student where that's going to be a barrier, if they're applying at the top tier programs across the southeast, they're probably not going to be successful against the other people that are applying there. So even just setting them up to apply to what I would call the appropriate types of programs, the programs where they would flourish you know, this may be, I, I call it the, you know, the, the B student phenomenon, right? You get this student who they were a straight B student in class, but you know what? They learned the material. They knew it. When they get out on rotation, they're just killing it. And you put them with the straight A student who was really good at taking tests and they can't figure out how to take care of a patient because they can't apply the information that they learned. i would sure much rather have the B student. So there are programs out there that they're going to be a great fit for and are going to give them a good training. So I'll try to individualize even where I'm coaching them to apply so that they have a higher likelihood for success versus, you know, it's kind of like, oh, go for your dreams. The 2.0 student is probably not going to match, and I'm not going to use specific program names, but they're not going to match at the most competitive programs in the country. But there's some solid, good training programs out there that would be really helpful for them. They'd make good residents at the program that you could encourage them to apply for. It's like your kids, you know, if your kid thinks at football, you probably don't want to encourage them to try to for a, a quarterback scholarship in college. It's like, you know, son, mm-hmm. I love you. Uh, uh, let's play football and have fun. It's probably not going to be your career. Let's focus on your education or something like that. We just tend to to sometimes build up these dreams that are unattainable. And the fact is we, we all have innate talents and abilities, right? I'm thinking, I'm thinking strengths finders. We're all wired differently. And we got to build upon our strengths, uh, and that's what we need to do with our students is identify their strengths and where they're going to be successful and help push them in those directions. And that doesn't necessarily mean that telling them they can't do a residency, it may simply be reshaping their thoughts around where, where and how they need to approach the residency process.
1: This is a great discussion, but we just have to break just so we can get some more Tennessee trivia in here for a second, then we'll get back to the discussion. So Taylor, why don't you go first with the, uh, this week's trivia?
0: Will do, and obviously I have to stick with the Tennessee theme, but knowing how good David was at trivia last episode, I kind of wish I picked a little bit of a harder question because I I feel like he's just going to knock it out of the park. But Tennessee is known as the birthplace of country music, so which Tennessee city specifically is known as the birthplace of country music? And I'll I'll give you some choices. So we've got Knoxville, Nashville, Nashville, Bristol or
1: Oak Ridge? I know it's not Nashville because you wouldn't ask this question if it was that obvious. Gosh, I don't actually know. I would made say. It easy
2: for you, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: know. I have no idea. I, Oak Ridge is where they, they made the nuke. So I, I don't think that's it, but it might be. I'm going to say Bristol. <laughs> it's probably Knoxville.
2: I'll go more confidently with Bristol, Taylor. <laughs> okay,
0: yeah. <laughs> See, I, I knew knew this was going to be a home run. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, Bristol, Tennessee. Um, uh, I just guess. I had no idea. You kind of led me to the, <laughs>
2: the answer. Well, I so appreciate the, that. The difference, Sean, is I listen to both types of music: country <laughs> and western. And western. <laughs>
1: All right. So mine's a little more local. So the Blue Plum Festival, which they they hold in Johnson City every year. Taylor, you probably never heard of this, but you don't have to really know about the Blue Plum to get this question. So it started in 1999. It's a real fun festival. They have a bunch of local music artists and even music artists they bring from outside and they set up a bunch of stages and they do it downtown. There's food, there's uh, crafts, there's uh, artists and there's uh, really good food and everything like that. And you can carry around beer. They shut down the whole kind of downtown area. It's really fun. If you get a chance, go to it. But it started in 1999, uh, and it's a region staple. However, it almost fell apart in around 2016 when one of the organizers for it, the executive director, started embezzling money for the nonprofit organization. So my question is, how much money did she steal from the Blue Plum Festival? was it less than 25,000, 25
0: to 50,000, 50 to 100,000 or more than $100,000. Well, after hearing about the Blue Plum Festival, I'm disheartened that anybody would try to embezzle money from it because <laughs> it sounds just lovely. But I'm going to say she went all, went for it all, so I'm going to go uh, over 100,000. <laughs>
2: You know, Sean, I was really hoping that maybe you'd give uh, some easier brackets there. And, and I could be completely wrong about this. It has been five years. I remember reading about it in the Johnson City Press. I was, I was thinking it was a larger amount of money. So I'll just go with Taylor and go with over 100000 as well.
1: The widest range, right? I figured you all both would go for that. It's actually a lot less than that. It was forty nine thousand nine hundred and fifty dollars. She did it over. She did thirty eight checks. She put the uh, the presidents on there and uh, and and cashed thirty eight checks over a period of years. And they were so broke they couldn't even pay their twenty sixteen vendors. But it did come back. And you tell us, David, is it still going on there, or did it did it fizzle out?
2: Well, that's a good question. And I'm not, I'm not confident. Uh, I'm trying to remember if maybe COVID, you know, with COVID so much changed during the pandemic as far as festivals and events. So uh, I'm sorry. I'm very ignorant when it comes to the blue plum. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's okay. Well, that question comes from a local Matt Caldwell. So it's a friend of mine. So he helped me out with that question. Uh, so I'm just going to reach out to Matt and see what's up with the blue plum. He'd be, <laughs> he knows way more about the history, John. I, I,
2: I think I went to the blue plum one time, Sean. you can basically walk there if you happen to be here taylor go but i don't know that i'd get a hotel room in johnson city just for the blue plum yeah i
0: I was hoping you're gonna go for four for four david but i mean three out of four is probably better than any any guest um, record on trivia so All right. Back
1: to the question. So this postgraduate training, it's a it's a big decision. And if it's not a big decision, we certainly make it feel like a pretty big decision to go through and commit and actually go forward with with applying for postgraduate training positions. So it almost seems like if you don't make it while you're a student, like make this decision to pursue it, your chances of getting it are very rare or if not challenging. Trying to go back after being in a career in trying to apply and get it just from like anecdotal stuff we've heard from students, just, you know, colleagues of mine or peers that have graduated pharmacy school with me who tried to go back and do it. You know, it seems to be much rarer, more challenging. So, how is someone supposed to determine if it's right for them, not having experienced it or really seeing the difference it will make on their career, other than just hearing from folks who've been through the
2: process? You know, I think at the end of the day, you're given a lot of resources as a student, including the faculty and mentors that have been placed in your life to give you guidance and advice. As a faculty, uh, a preceptor, whoever that mentor person is, the best thing they can do is ask, where do you see yourself in three to five years? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Some of those individualized questions we talked about. If you share what your ultimate goals are, with a mentor and your mentor advises you down the route you probably should take their advice I guess that's how I would I would help come to that decision if if you if you don't know what you should do step back and say where am I trying to get to and then find people that will give you honest answers and then know what they're talking about and ask them what you need to do to get there so for example if you want to be an ambulatory care pharmacist if a student tells me that Then I usually tell them straight up, there may be a P2 student, say, well, what you're looking at then is a year of general postgraduate training after you graduate pharmacy school and another year of specialized training in ambulatory care. That will make you the best ambulatory care pharmacist that you can be. And you need to prepare yourself for that now. So if that's what you want to do, then you need to be prepared to do that. I think the student in my mind that I envision when you ask me that question is the student that's waffling because they don't really know what they want to do because they've, they've never kind of nailed down those decisions from a career standpoint. And they're probably thinking about things like, well, the job market is contracted and I hear the graduates aren't getting jobs, so maybe I should do a residency because then maybe I'll be more likely to get a job. And I would just say you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. Figure out what you want to do. Figure out what the, the, the ideal practice environment for you is as a student and then take a path that's going to make you successful. So you can get a job easily in community pharmacy right now, but you need to set yourself apart and show that you have prepared yourself to be the best community pharmacist that you can be. And there's a lot of easy things you can do in your in your education and in your fourth year on rotations to, to help you accomplish that. So, again, I'll go back and say the student needs to identify what their career goals are so they can then get the appropriate advice from their mentors. And then they need to listen and follow the advice that they're given.
1: So for someone who chooses to forgo postgraduate training, how can they secure a position they're passionate about so they might be less likely to experience burnout?
2: I think that's a great question for any student. And, and I would argue that don't make the decision for the wrong reasons. And a lot of students make the decision for the wrong reasons. So, for example, I'm going to take this job because it pays $20,000 more a year than the other job. Or I'm going to, you know, if I live in this city, the salaries are higher, but they don't think about things like cost of living, quality of life, maybe distance from family, overall, you know, well-being, you know, social community well-being, you're going to be For example, if you're someone who maybe Sundays are an important day for you and you're working in a job that you work every other weekend, you're probably not going to be as happy in that as maybe an independent community pharmacist uh, where you're working, maybe you're working six days a week, but you're working half days on Saturdays and have your Sundays off. So there's just so many different things that can go into that. I would say that the students just need to think about what it is that fulfills them and makes them happy. You know, if you enjoy compounding, you know, maybe you don't want to take a job at a store that doesn't have a compounding lab. There's just so many different career options out there that oftentimes students don't think about. They think, "Oh, I'm going to work at a hospital or a drugstore." And then they'll sprinkle some ambulatory care in there for you, Sean. Uh, but they you know they don't think about you know long- term care, uh, geriatrics and you know nuclear pharmacy and outpatient infusion, and you know consulting work. and there there's so many different things that they could do if they had opportunities to explore that earlier on. And so they wind up making decisions based on the path of least resistance, I think. It's like, oh, I was an intern over here and they offered me a job so I know I can get a job and the salary's good. But my question to them, I'll often ask those students, I'll say, what do you like what you do? If they're like, "Uh, not really, I'm sitting there thinking, you're not going to like this long-term if you don't like it as an intern and you talk about how unhappy the people you work with are, you're probably not going to be happy there either. Uh, you're, going to, you're going to make a lot of money and be, be miserable, you know, within six months of taking that job. So I think this goes back to what we talked about earlier. They've got to figure out what they want to do that's going to fulfill them because you're going to do this for the entirety of your career. And nobody can work 30, 40 years in a profession that they don't like just because the money's good.
0: These are all great discussions and things that I'm having with students in my well-being elective right now about, you know, really having to pursue something that they're passionate about and that they can find meaning and purpose. And in. instead of just chasing that salary number, I feel like a lot of students will will look at that number and that's all they base their decisions off of. But truly finding that passion is, is so important. And whether that Looks like going through residency or going straight into the workforce out of school. I think that's just something they need to be honest with themselves.
1: And I'm seeing this. I see this a lot where students make the assumption that they're not going to get it or they're not going to be considered. So they don't put forth the effort to apply. But if you don't put so for like you were saying some of these places like nuclear pharmacy, home infusion, I mean, these are great places there's no harm in applying to something. There's no harm in interviewing and seeing what's the job like, would I like it, or even shadowing someone over there. So if you don't put forth the effort to send that stuff out to to see if if they would consider you, you're never going to know. You're always going to have that, well, what if, what if I had done this? What if I had done that? And I even see that in residents, residents who are just like, not doing things because they're like, well, I'm not, I, I just don't think they'll respond to it or th- they won't email me back or they won't do this. And it's like, hey, well, have you tried? Go ahead and send it out there and then it's done. And that's, that's completely ignoring workload. And do you have time to do all this? Or are you ignoring your schoolwork when you're doing all this? So don't do that. But I feel like a lot of times students just don't take that, that effort to, to apply to those places and see, cause they, you know, you might get an interview and next thing you know, you might be getting a job offer and then you're going to look back and say, man, that was the best decision I ever made because I love my job now. When should candidates get off the fence? Candidates that are on the fence say, I don't know if I want to do postgraduate training. I don't know if I want to pursue other career opportunities. At what point do they need to make a decision? When is it too late to make that decision?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and I see people make this mistake so often, and it's it's really heartbreaking when the student shows up for their, maybe it's their first clinical rotation in January or February, because all along they said, you know, I'm, I've got this job over here, I like it, this is what I've always wanted to do. They really never taken the time to explore other paths of pharmacy, and then January they have this rotation, maybe they have uh, Dr. Smith Gall on ambulatory care. And they say, I want to grow up and be like him. Um, they I all say do that. this residency thing. Yeah. <laughs> but the problem is they're saying it in January. And unfortunately, you know, the middle end of January is just too late and they they've allowed that door to close. So anytime a student comes to me and is on the fence about doing a residency, my advice to them is walk down the path of doing a residency because you are not on the hook. You've not made a commitment until you submit that rank order list in March You can submit applications and you can get interviews and turn them down. You can go on interviews and not put the program on a rank list or not even submit a rank order list. So my advice to students who are somewhat on the fence is to go ahead and start walking down that path. Do the best job you can with your, your, your letters, your packets, your applications. Perform as well as you can in your interviews, just as if you're going down that road. But at any point in time, if you, if you recognize, oh, this isn't for me, then go ahead and let people know that. Uh, you know, if you're offered an interview, don't take it just because it was offered. Just be honest. There are other people that would rather have that interview if you're not interested in taking the position. But just because you interview at a, a program doesn't mean you have to rank them. And In fact, you've got until the first Friday in March to make that hard no-go, no-go decision. So that would be my encouragement for students is walk down that path because you don't want to be the individual who realizes in January or February or even March, I wish I would have done this or this is really what I want to do. It's too late. Uh, and like you alluded to earlier, going back and doing a residency after the fact we talk about, absolutely, it can be done. But practically, we don't see it very often. because It's very hard once you've graduated and gotten a job and you know, to, to give that up and go back and give that your your life up. It's a very natural progression to go straight from being a student to being a postgraduate learner. You get a little salary, you got some health benefits, life's better, and then you get a real job, uh, and, you know, it all is good. So it's hard to give that job up and go back into that postgraduate training mode. I've seen people do it. I've seen people do it successfully. I've seen one or two do it unsuccessfully. Uh, so don't want to discourage them, but you're better off to go down the road. You can always close the door a lot easier than you can open it.
1: That's exactly what I tell my students. I say postgraduate training opens up doors and you can always go back.
2: You know, one of the success stories I think about, you're talking about going back, student we had several years ago who applied for residency. And I was just, I remember thinking, I don't think they're going to be successful. I'm not confident they'll make a good resident. And they didn't match. And then I saw the individual at mid-year the next year. And they had taken a job at a chain pharmacy. I think it was CVS or Walgreens in a major metropolitan area. And they were applying for PGY-1 residency. And they wound up with a really good residency at a very prestigious academic medical center because I think they had the grit to go back and, and say, I'm giving this up. I'm passionate about this and I want to do it. And it turned out you know, to be really successful Uh, in their career path. So I would also say to follow up on what you said, Sean, if you are unsuccessful and it really is what you want to do, that year of work after graduating may be the most important time in your life to prepare you and set you up for success in postgraduate training. And I think we see that a lot with our students. I would say that I usually would be much less likely to see a poor performing non-traditional student or a non-traditional student that struggles versus a student coming straight out of undergrad, maybe two years of prerequisites into pharmacy school, because that student that's been out in the real world and had those life experiences, they're more determined than ever. This is what I want to do. and This is what I gave up to be here. So I'm all in. Whereas some of the others, maybe they're not completely sold uh, on the idea. They just don't have that real world experience. And they're more likely to throw that towel in. Uh, so yeah, if you're, if you are that individual that's determined to go back, you know, don't be discouraged in doing that. I would encourage you to do that, but no, it's going to be a lot of work.
1: That's the story of one of our fellows we had just two years ago, worked in CVS for a year and looked at our fellowship and it was a fellowship. There's a lot of risk there because it wasn't accredited and did the fellowship and is now an ambulatory care pharmacist. So, I mean, just, uh, and, and very successful and, and made a great, like I can tell you from experience That real world experience meant a lot to us Mm -hmm. because so far we just had students who were straight out of pharmacy school. So now someone, they knew what was going on on the other side of the the wall in retail pharmacy and was so helpful for Amcare. David, any closing thoughts or remarks on this topic?
2: Yeah, I I think I just get back to what I said earlier for the students and just summarize it by saying, have goals, set goals for yourself, know where you want to go figure out a plan, have a plan to get there, and use the resources at your disposal that are going to include your faculty members and your preceptors. And then I would also say, you know, test the advice. Does this make sense, you know, in light of what I want to accomplish? If you're saying, I want to be a community pharmacist, and you've got a mentor saying, hey, you, you know, you really need to do a residency. Well, maybe that's bad advice. Maybe you should seek out some counsel from others. So do kind of test the advice you're given, because I would say a lot of it's common sense and and when you get good advice, Oh, that makes sense. I can see that I would need to do that to achieve the goals that I've set for myself, but you don't know where you're going. If you don't know what your destination is.
0: That's all great advice. Thank you, David, for being a repeat guest on the postgraduate pharmacist today and for all of your valuable insight.
2: Well, thank you, Taylor. And, and thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure being your guest and uh, best wishes. Keep, keep doing great things. Really proud of both you guys. And, uh, Uh, Thanks again for letting me be on your podcast.
0: If you want to continue to hear up-to-date topics from us and our guests, please like and subscribe. Remember, you can listen to us on all
1: major podcast apps, and don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode in
2: the description below.